0: Into the Art of War on the
1: Network. Part two, Machiavelli. You're listening to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. This is Yaga Malark, and I'm Thumbs. And tonight we're talking about part two of Machiavelli's Art of War. And it is thick. I know we mentioned this in the last episode, but uh, if you guys are following along at home, I really commend you for getting through this one, because as we've said before, where Sun Tzu is simple and concise in his military analysis, Machiavelli tends to draw a bit more toward the loquacious, if yeah. you will. <laughs> that boy loves words. He does. And all of the words. And, and of course... Uh, translations from that time vary in their accuracy and in their stanza and so it can it can be difficult i understand it can be difficult for for folks to be reading translations so uh, if you are italian and you're just reading it in the original, I commend you, and I am jealous, and I am working on uh, learning your language. However, if you Even are, that's got to be kind of hard, though, because you're exactly talking about
0: couple-century-old Italian. It's like reading Shakespeare. You can do it, but you have to kind of stop and think about it a little bit here and there.
1: Because nobody talks like that. Anymore. Yeah. Nobody talks like that. Probably nobody talked like that at the time, either.
0: No, I mean, but it was the style. It was.
1: But yeah, so yeah, if you guys are following along at home, we, we absolutely appreciate that. Uh, we, we understand it's a difficult one to get through. And if you're just uh, listening to the show, in order to have us digest it for you, we're here for you today. Before we get into the, the real the real meat and potatoes of this particular episode, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's been going on in our wargaming experience and to uh, pick a fight with a dead guy. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I disagree with some of Machiavelli's analysis in this chapter. And that's, that's simply because I, I, have, I also have to understand, as, as do we all, that Machiavelli was writing in a time, in a place in a context that isn't now. And so it's it's so easy to forget that we are living in a golden age of humanity at the moment, at least when it comes to information access. We have the whole breadth of human experience, the whole breadth of human history at our fingertips with these smartphones that a lot of us have.
0: Yeah, most of my research for everything we do on this, I mean, I have the book, but anything else, like all of the stuff we had on Machiavelli was just finding decent sources online right. and reading Mm -hmm. that would have taken him months of research to like find different copies of things on a single person
1: absolutely and and, and when we're talking about just the access you know we've got access to to like literally everything as fast as you can read you can digest it but like Thumbs was saying if you're talking about the time of Machiavelli you were lucky to have you know a, a shelf in your library that was actual Roman literature or actual stuff on the material that you wanted looking for this information was a lot more difficult acquiring and having the time to digest it even more so We have access to a great deal more information Than Machiavelli did um, I mean, To
0: really just drive that home Of the tabs I have open just on my phone alone We have the Battle of Hastings How to make a Marian helmet uh, A tab about a show called Miracle Workers With Daniel Radcliffe uh, The Late Bronze Age Collapse on the Wikipedia And an article about Charlemagne I have a definite theme, but still, like, the fact that I could access all of that in in four seconds' work right there.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. It is incredible the times we're living in. I don't necessarily blame Machiavelli for his lack of information. But he's wrong. But he's wrong on, on several subjects. To start with, you have to understand that fundamentally Machiavelli is Eurocentric, which is to say that everything he's talking about comes from the European perspective and is putting the Europeans at the top of the pack. And part of this is because he knows far more about the Greeks and Romans than he does about, say, the Chinese, the Mongolians the Indian Empire, the Mali, the Zulu, um, he doesn't have access to the any Mo- of that information.
0: The Mongolians weren't that far before this either, so... They
1: really weren't, but they also weren't very well understood. And that's what I mean. Like We now have
0: the secret history of the Mongol Empire. We have the book literally titled that. They had these random people that showed up
1: they had stories. They had yeah. stories of these wild-eyed horse-riding warriors that would come in on the wind and destroy whole civilizations and then leave as quickly as they came. Like It was more the stuff of myth than it was history at yeah. the time. But, but we have peeled back the veil. And, and we can see the truth of it all. And so when uh, Machiavelli makes claims, uh, like all horsemen armies don't work, and now he's contradicted. Like in the, in the chapter, the character is contradicted when when the person he's talking to says, now wait a second, what about the Parthians? They gave the Romans quite a weapon." Parthians and, were also Eurasian steppe, right? Like, they were, but, but Machiavelli responds to that by saying, we're not talking about the Asians. <laughs> 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 we're talking about Europe. Come on,
0: man, stop disproving me.
1: And so, uh, but but in that, in that statement, Machiavelli kind of admits exactly how Eurocentric his analysis is because he doesn't have access to the records of the Parthians, like how they were able to make a cavalry army that was was capable of doing that. He doesn't understand the culture that goes into a, like a, a Mongolian setup. Like there's a whole culture behind why the Mongolian horse army worked as well as it did. Yeah. And, and Europe just didn't have it. Speaking of Eurocentrism, if we're talking about just sheer geography, Europe is not a great place to do a lot of cab. Because you have a whole lot of thick woods, you have a whole lot of marshes, rivers, mountains, fjords, channels, like not a very, it's not a place where the horseman would be as supreme. Now if we're talking about, again, the Eurasian steppe, the Mongolian steppe, the Great Plains of America... These places, wide open, are perfect. Horses, you have to have horses
0: to survive, basically. Like, uh, even the Mongolians were like, we have to send people back to the steppes every once in a while. Because if they're gone for too long, they kind of forget how to be terrifying
1: Mongolian horse archers. Partially, again, because of the culture there. Mm -hmm. Because of the, just like, everything was done on the horse. But also the, the geography allowed for it. Um, everything's so wide open and everything you don't have the same obstacles and dangers to a horse in, uh, in this area that you would have had in most of Europe. And so I, I think the biggest reason why you don't see a preponderance of domination, like there's a few ages of the horse in Europe. Um, there's, a, there's a hundred year war between, uh, that uh, the age of the horse existed and, and it was extremely effective at the time, but by and large. We're never really talking about like 20,000
0: men all mounted pure cavalry armies who are like, who
1: are trained to operate with other sections of the cav who have who have specific roles or who have grown up their entire lives on a horse as a culture because again it wasn't like says the mongolians you can look at it and be like, okay, this was a culture that had been this way for millennia, maybe, mm-hmm. um, living in this, this sympathetic relationship with the horse. But if you look at the Plains tribes, the Sioux, the Cheyenne, the Apache, <laughs> and the Navajo, they had the horse for maybe about 100 years, and they built empires. They got one wicked good it
0: on it, wicked fast.
1: So again, in the right geography, the horse is an amazing battlefield adaptation and can absolutely turn the tide. But in the wrong situation the horse doesn't necessarily perform very well. And our battle today, I'm not going to give it away until we get to the Mm -hmm. end, but our battle today, I think, kind of illustrates that within this this same Eurocentric perspective. Because again, we can look at Asia and we can look at North America and say, absolutely, horse armies can do well.
0: To to use a wargaming term here, because why not? In the meta of Italian warfare in his era, when we're talking about little city-states with like 30 miles of territory around them, in that meta, horse armies are not really a thing. Right. Armies with horses are right. a thing.
1: So, like, to have cav for a maneuverability factor to, like, have a screen or whatever the case may be, absolutely. flankers. Yep. Uh, scouting unit, absolutely. But they were not the core of the army. Uh, so this is the perspective that Machiavelli is coming from on this. In case you were reading along and being like, wait a minute, what, is it, what does it mean all horse <laughs> armies don't work? They absolutely <laughs> can't have work. We
0: have 3,000 years of history, like, up to the point
1: of black powder. But Machiavelli didn't have that. He, he had no. a much more for limited access than we do. So, I'm not saying we're smarter than Machiavelli, we just have a bit a more We got better picture. tools. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to pick a fight with the dead guy on <laughs> was his analysis of the javelin, uh, because he's always so praiseworthy of the Roman kit. Everything about the Romans, their armor, their fighting style, their training, um, he's just all about the Romans. But at the very beginning of this chapter, he confesses that he does not understand why the Romans would carry around a spear with them because the Roman style was very in close melee combat. The spear wouldn't be useful for the style of combat they were doing, so he's like, "Well, they just end up throwing it away, anyways. So why would you bring it on the field to throw it away?" <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the whole reason.
0: Yeah, you're not like when they're saying they're throwing it away; they're not just like dropping it, being like, "Well, that was a mistake, but oh, gosh, like
1: that was just a piece of weight that I carried out here." They're freaking throwing it right, and, and and in particular when we're talking about javelins, uh, if you do any sort of war like physical wargaming, like Belagarth, SCA, dagger here, that sort of thing. Our javelins are reusable. They go, they plunk somebody, and then conceivably the idea is just pull it out of the person and then you keep using it. The Roman javelin, or pilum, actually went through people and was designed for a completely different purpose. Uh, imagine a shaft of wood that is very heavy, designed to be heavy, and on the end of it is a long point ending in the spear tip. So you got this long, little, skinny piece of metal and with it's a, a super heavy, fine point at the end too. It's a super fine point, and then a heavy, 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 heavy ha- shaft on it. This is thrown. And the target for them, I mean, you could hit people with it. It was still very effective at pe- it, like hitting people. But the real point of it was to drive it into your opponent's shields because that slender piece of metal bent. And so what you had was an encumbrance. It came down and made it difficult to use the shield, or impossible to continue using the shield. And so the Romans would just throw this wave of javelins, or wave of pylum and disable for, for lack of remember, a better term. We could the, be the the talking
0: femuric. about like a thousand pylums being thrown right, at that moment right, too. Right, like this, this is... Large numbers. Yeah. These were, you know, one javelin is fine, but 20 javelins is... I can block one way easier. The others, I'm like, well, I'm not going to block all of these.
1: To give a couple of examples, uh, there's a couple of units that make heavy use of the pre-melee javelin toss. Uh, Think about the EBF or the Urukai, who make a a very large effort and habit of carrying javelins onto the field. Again, those javelins don't last past the first five seconds of the engagement because they have been thrown. And if they have just been a distraction, fine. They they were a distraction. Good distraction. They managed to take a limb, take a life. Cool, even better. But it's very, it, it, it's effective. At the very least, it stops the momentum of the advancing force. Yeah, you got to, to
0: pause to block in a lot of cases.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or even
0: just take your attention off long enough to block. Right,
1: which can open it up for an archer shot, spear shot, whatever the case may be. So the javelin does have a place. It is not a primary offensive weapon. Like uh, the way Machiavelli is thinking about this, using it basically as a spear and a shield combo. like yeah, He's a thinking hoplite. like Greek
0: phalanx style. Yeah, like yeah, a
1: hoplite type thing. That's not what it's, that <laughs> wasn't the purpose of it. So I disagree with Machiavelli's analysis here just because I don't think he understood what that tool was for. Yeah. That, it, 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 or maybe he did <laughs> and he just didn't like the idea of a javelin. I don't know. I don't, maybe he just was a, an, an infantry purist. I don't know. I can't talk to him. He's dead, which is why I'm arguing with a dead guy.
0: Right also, now. he speaks a different language. He's it would be very, Italian.
1: that would be very difficult. Yeah, I don't I don't actually speak, read, or write Middle Italian, <laughs> so... That would be a difficult conversation. I would hope that he would maybe understand Middle English. Maybe. Probably not. I don't know. I don't know. I have to ask him. Let's get the seance going on. <laughs> and a Ouija board? Somebody even Ouija board. That's your area, bud. So, yeah, Machiavelli. Uh, that's just kind of my the little little mini fight that I wanted to pick with a dead guy. Otherwise, war gaming has been going very well. This last week, I had three games with my Death Guard Force. I recently was able to beef them up with three Plague Burst crawlers, uh, Foul Blight Spawn, and Chaos Lord for you some said more reasons. Crawlers. That's the tanky things. Yep, showing the tanky me, right? looking Just things. Sure. with the, They're like a siege cannon. Uh, yeah, tank. yeah. You showed me that. Yeah, they're they're sick, and they've been doing work. Uh, my first two fights were against Eldar. I went against Harlequins and Craftworld, and in both cases. Did far better than I expected to. I won both games, and that was kind of a surprise. I had kind of expected Eldar to be a challenge with this army, and I mean it was a challenge. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm, I, I, I both, beat this easy. Both, both Sue and Juniper played very good games, but the mechanics just seemed to work in my favor. The third game was against the Tyranids, and we ended up having to call it a draw because he had to go to bed so that he could get up for class in the morning. You know that responsible, kind uh, of important, yeah. real life stuff. And that, that, but that was an excellent game too. I have no, we had to end at round three, and I have no idea how that one would. end ended if we'd have gone three more rounds. It was very, very, very interesting. Which which just leads me back to my point that I love playing the death card. <laughs> They're just a fun list to play. For one thing, um, the majority of this army that I've built has an invuln of some sort, mostly five-up invulns, and then everybody has a five-up feel-no-pain. And an entire army that just shrugs off damage and says, nah, I'm not going to take that.
0: Yeah, there's, there's fun to being a tank. There's a reason I played them in D&D for so many years.
1: Mm-hmm. I hit you for this. Oh, well, I don't care (laughs) i I, I just soak it Mm, nurgle soak (laughs) so i've been i've been very much enjoying my death guard if anybody's out there considering doing death guard i highly recommend it especially after that hateful assault which is the the shock assault equivalent for chaos marines uh after that drop oh my word my blight lord terminators are oh oh that flail because what the the hateful assault does is uh, if your space marine or your chaos marine in this particular case charged was charged was or performed a heroic intervention. Basically, if they entered into melee combat this round, yeah, they get a plus one to attack oh. over the whole unit. So they're like, I entered, ha ha. ha. Yeah, or I was charged, ha ha. <laughs> like they're just they're, they're they are they makes them very strong and adrenaline rush the move. Yeah, and and so the flail of corruption. Anybody who plays death guard knows the weapon I'm talking about. But the flail of corruption gets basically d three hit rolls per attack that the unit gets nice so that's another d3 hit rolls with the flail of corruption and the the flail of corruption is one of like two or three weapons that the damage bleeds over because in most cases if you've got a unit of 10 dudes all with one wound apiece and i deal two wounds to one dude that extra wound is just lost it's overkill Mm -hmm. but with this flail it bleeds over and keeps bleeding over until either the damage has all been dealt or the unit is dead so if you are stacking attacks onto that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that gets really OP really quick so uh, Death Guard have been really fun very much enjoying them the last thing I wanted to say before we move into the meat and potatoes was I wanted to give a shout out to my apprentice TF I brag about all my squares so you decided it was time to brag about your squares I'm, I'm normally a very quiet kind of guy I'm, 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 I don't necessarily boast about my achievements and I don't boast necessarily about the achievements of others but I am very proud of my apprentice TF because he has finally achieved the rank of primal within the great hunt yeah that's that's a lot of work and and I know I'm I'm saying a lot of gobbledygook at the moment to folks, uh, because if you are not a part of Bellagarth and not a part of the Great Hunt, you will not know what a primal is. And so we're, I'm going to explain that very briefly. Uh, 2010, Great Hunt was started, and it is a system within Bellagarth of trials that are not unit or realm specific. It is designed to be able to be used by anybody. You described it as an Xbox
0: achievement system when you first made
1: it. Yeah, it, it kind of plays like an Xbox achievement system for physical fighting, wargaming. And it sort of tracks your achievements and so you get points for winning tournaments you get points for passing certain trials getting a certain number of kills while injured is Mm -hmm. the way that you can earn like achievements on it and so to become a primal that basically means that you have to not only be a tournament winner in whatever style that you've chosen to specialize in but you also have to prove that you are able to get high numbers of kills in that style and pass trials that are some of them situated towards your style and some not. So for example... There's a
0: variety of styles that you basically have to do to do this.
1: Most of the trials are 1v4. So at a, to just start off, you're at a disadvantage numerically. And then typically you're at a gear disadvantage as well. There's a couple of rules that might be put into place that make it easier to kill your opponents, but... A lot there's... of times the four people will be brittle, so like yeah. one shot will kill them. So instead of, you know, if an arm shot just taking an arm, it's, it counts as a kill shot. But again you've got a 4v1 you know one situation occurring, and so the trial are designed to test your limits and test your abilities so to hit primal you basically have to complete what the great hunt has to offer and there's quite a bit to it if you go there's a there's a geddon page for it if you go to www.geddon.com and look up the great hunt there's three whole pages on there written up of lore and the way that these trials work so it's a it's it's a rather impressive achievement mm-hmm. to hit primal and uh it's one of my requirements for my apprentices and and to get it one of the one of the the, the challenges once you hit primal are, are different kind of lore based things and TF, he's he's good at public speaking but he has a fear of it. And so at Battle for the Ring he entered into the Bardic competition and performed a Lakota creation story in the original Lakota and in English.
0: Oh, I didn't know he did it in both languages. Yes. That's super cool. I'm, I got to do that at one point and oddly considering the
1: number of podcasts that I do, I really am not looking forward to like performing in front of people. There is a difference between a podcast and a performance because here the only people in this room are you and I. But when you're up on stage and you're looking down that... Mic- microphone and all those faces looking at you it's a little scary it can be a little scary it can be a little scary so i i commend him for for looking his fear in the face and conquering it i commend him for all of his effort in reaching where he has been and i just i wanted to give him big ups mm-hmm. tonight uh,
0: i was actually going to talk about just similar telling wargaming stories uh, two attempts to do the trial of water from this right Trial of Water is a bridge battle by a ten foot by twenty foot bridge. Yep. You, it's you and one partner versus three people, and it is so why and you just have to get across. You can either kill all three people and get across, or you can just get across. Right, and it is interesting how wildly variable it is to watch people accomplish these achievements. Because I said two people accomplished it in completely different fights. Sure, first one was wug He was using his pole arm. He's kind of a little guy, but he he loves swinging a big old pole. Right, with Roar, who is a very Aggressive front fighter with a big shield mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus two shield men and Grizzly who swings a glaive like nobody's business and they just barely got through, they would have died if they had one step further to go on attempt number five. But they managed to make it? By one step.
1: Beautiful. But
0: then the next time, Roar went and got Grizz to be his polearm, his assistant guy, and was able to use that and hit in just the right way and he just basically walked across. No no difficulty whatsoever. And he's like, oh, that's that's really easy. I'm like, oh, you are so lucky that like everything landed right how it did.
1: <laughs> and, and, and that's, that drills home another good point, is that these trials work people in different ways and they can be challenging to different people in different ways. Like you were saying, Wug was having a difficult time with it. Oh, yeah. And and managed to just kind of sk- just squeak in. While he, he did the effort, it was a struggle. And I would put these two at about the same skill level on the field. Like, different setups, but... Like you were saying, that uh, that Roar was able to just walk through it, basically. Um, I've, I I had a similar experience with the Trial of Air. This is one where it's just you, and you're against four archers. Three archers and uh, yes, one
0: yeah. uh, arrow gatherer, but it's basically a person with a single blue who Who's there to harass you.
1: Yep, they're, they're there to run for arrows and they're to stand between you and the archers so that the archers can shoot you. And it's, it, I found it to be nigh impossible. To, it took me nine attempts at the Trial of Error to get it. That's five attempts per try, nine times. So I was basically, I was, I was getting up towards 45 attempts at this Trial of Error. Just about everybody else I've seen take it, walks through it their first or second time.
0: Yeah, Tethyan got it on
1: his first strike. Yes, yes, and I can. myself... You were real myself, mad about that, I'm, I'm not at Tethian. I'm <laughs> faster than Tethian. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha, but yeah, so it, it was just it was it was one of those trials that I really struggled. I walked through metal, I walked through fire, I walked through air. Those were ones that were very easy to me. Or I walked through. Uh, sorry, um, uh, I said fire metal, branch, and, and, and yeah, most of the other ones were very easy to me. Uh, branch and air gave me the most issues. Whereas Talon, uh, one of the one of the fellows I know from Over Endur Demarian, uh, he made it look easy. He made it like I was sitting there looking at it, being like, I needed to design this one harder because he just was floating around the field. <laughs> he looked beautiful. And so, it's it's different. Okaji, The first time, we, like, Kaji did it at the same time that Tethian did it. Just walked right through it. It's the very first time. I haven't succeeded
0: on Branch yet, so don't feel bad.
1: But that's just to say that, like, based on who you are and where your strengths are on the battlefield, the Great Hunt is designed to test your weaknesses and your strengths accordingly. So,
0: if you've reached Primal, to get back to where we were originally talking, you have passed
1: all of these. You have shown your strength in, like, six different places. Mm-hmm. Which a... is, it's impressive. So, yeah, again, to, to all the Primals out there and to... And to TF, our newest primal, congratulations! But I think we're about ready to get into the yeah potatoes. Let's let's talk
0: about the thing that people are listening to us to talk about.
1: going to jump into part 2 of Machiavelli. So one of the major themes for this chapter apart from just hating on cavalry is arming your force and the best way to go about arming your force. And and, and by arming your force I mean which equipment specifically you choose to arm them with. And the big examples that he was comparing in this chapter, were between what he calls the Roman style versus the Greek or German style. So again, you have to understand what was happening at his time to understand why it was called the German style. If we think German style right now, we're like Panzer tanks, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Wehrmacht. Like, no, no, no. Not, that's not what we're talking about. or uh, uh, So it was more the, the spear. So when he's comparing the Greek and the German together, it was because of the large spear formations that they relied upon. Whereas the Roman was more of a mixed infantry tactic where you had a proclivity of like a sword and board technique. So you the big heavy shield. infantry too. Yeah, heavy infantry. So you had armor, shield, big shield, and then a, a, s- a small sword. A small sword and a dagger uh, that were made for close in, uh, mostly stabbing fighting. That was the majority of what the Romans did with stabbing less... Not so much slashing with their gladius is what it was called. And if
0: they could get close, which they were really good at, mm-hmm. they were unbeatable by these people with minimal armor and a spear. but
1: oh, you had an example from uh, one of the Persian conflicts. Yep, of that
0: in the Greco-Persian Wars, or I guess accurate term would be the Greek border wars, because it's really Persia's the big guys in this. But you know, battle Thermopylae, stuff like that. Herodotus even talks about in the final battle of those wars, what really won it was the fact that the Greeks had armor, right? Because the Persians, first of all, they were an Assyrian. So armor wasn't super heavy They did have some They did have shields But they were largely wicker shields yep, yep. And the Persians took it even farther Of they were running up to 80% of their armies with bow. Right they, I mean they could send 100,000 arrows at you In the space of not very long at all
1: And against uh, lightly armored uh, nations or armies that's you were dead. devastating yeah. there,
0: there was nothing You know if you have a 10,000 man army Facing a 15,000 Or just we'll say 10,000 again And they're firing five arrows a minute which is slow. Mm-hmm. That's 50,000 arrows in a minute. If you have to get across to get to them, that is devastating. But if you have.
1: Our arrows will block out the sun.
0: Yeah, but if you have full armor, or partial armor even, and a big shield, that's what 300 bothered me. They heroically nude was not really so much of a thing. <laughs>
1: Now, that being said, the Spartans wouldn't have had a huge amount of armor. They would have had basically shin guards, greaves, big shield, and some of them would have had some, like a a chest piece of something like that, but they largely relied on their shin guards and their big ass shield. Yeah, but
0: we can't understate how important, like in these wars, especially in this one I'm talking about, having a helmet and a breastplate, how much that affected everything. That's,
1: that's, yeah. As I said,
0: Herodotus himself said that it's not that the Persians were less brave or even less well trained, it's that they were underarmed.
1: And Machiavelli Touches on this too. He talks about the differences in conflicts, and one of the reasons he brings up the Germans is because in some recent conflicts that were occurring in his time, uh, they were suffering some pretty horrendous losses to smaller forces that were just using mixed infantry. They weren't dedicating purely to this this all spear technique or really to any all technique. Mm-hmm. But Thumbs touches on the next most important thing, which Machiavelli talks about, which is the importance of armor. These heavily armored, like the Romans, for instance, part of the reason they were able to conquer their known world was because they wore full armor. The Celts did not. The yeah, they Goths could take more hits. Did not, yeah. And so it was it was a matter to suffer more hits, and they could be more bold in their tactics and have it pay off. So armor it was not only huge here, but it's also huge in wargaming, too. When we talk about armor in Belagarth, it's very literal. Because we could wear armor. And units that have more armor tend to do better in larger battles. Take recent battles with the EBF, where they have been using a lot more armor in their more recent kits. And, and some of the, the Urukai from five years ago had a very Similar policy of almost requiring their members to have armor. I know. That yeah, all to the reach ranking a, people had armor. Yeah, to, to reach a certain rank, you had to have a full kit of armor. It's why I got my very first set of armor was to be able to make Ravager. Oh,
0: well, I remember that armored Pope hat you made.
1: It was bad. It yeah, was bad armor, but it was <laughs> it counted. It counted. It was better than no armor. Actually, no, it wasn't. I made it so poorly that it cut into my armpits and it was basically unwearable. uh The armor you made me is so much better.
0: I did not invent that pattern,
1: but it's good. Yeah, you put it, it together, good. So armor is huge. It because you, you see the this, this success that the Urukai had when they were out practicing this tactic, and you see the success that the EBF have now. I know the BOF also make a, a fairly decent show of wearing armor. Even the Romans from the Northeast, yeah, I see you guys, they're a fully armored unit as well. Now, they do more dagger here, but you can see the effectiveness of these units on the fields. True, they sacrifice some mobility for this, but that protection that it affords them, within our rules, armor is even fairly weak because it just blocks one shot and then it's gone. You can make one mistake. But, like, a a, a chainmail shirt... Can take a lot of abuse before oh, yeah. it's done fighting, you know? Like, and, and, and so armor is very useful, not just historically speaking, but even in the physical wargaming. But if you take this uh, even to the Warhammer 40k level, part of the reason that the Death Guard work so well isn't they have just
0: high invulnerables. You were talking about yep, it just before.
1: Yep. They've got high invulnerables. They, most of this army has invulnerable saves. Most of them are able to shrug off shots just through their feel no pains. But the other huge part is that Nurgle things are tougher. So, like, most infantry, like, the, the toughest infantry you're typically going to find in 40k is a toughness of 4. That's basically your heavy infantry. That's where infantry stops and you start going into your vehicles. Yeah. When you start doing like 5-6. That's light vehicles. Death guard infantry is, starts at 5. Okay, so they're automatically just... They're, so light arms? Far less effective against them. Any any sort of melee attack that relies on them being roughly the same? Like the, the death guard have a clear advantage.
0: It's like getting into a fist fight with a guy that weighs 100 pounds more than you. Right.
1: He may not, he may not be the quickest, but but he doesn't necessarily I gotta have to hit you to once. Be. Yeah. <laughs> so it is it's the same kind of idea here. Uh, it, it's a worthwhile sacrifice when you're talking about a large scale. Now, individual units, individual people might like to forsake the armor in order to get more mobility. I know I did when I was younger. I swore I would never own armor because it cut down on my speed and my mobility. But as I've gotten older and more sensitive to being smacked. <laughs>
0: I am good. Oh, nice. I am not the best. Armor lets me be more competitive with people. So especially on a bigger field, I'm oh, yeah. more likely to use it. Don't use it a ton. Uh oh, it, our game
1: is such a, a speed-based game, honestly, that and 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 especially in that way, armor makes a huge difference. When it's coming down to who landed the first shot and, and did they do it but like while the other one was in motion, if one person is wearing armor and both people throw kidney wraps, only one person's walking away from that fight. Yeah. And it's the person who is wearing armor. I know when I first got my kit, it was really really frustrating for TF because he wasn't wearing a lot of armor at that time and we were very evenly matched. I mean, he, he probably has me beat right now because he definitely has the physical uh, like <laughs> healthiness yeah. above me at the moment. Um, but at that time we were very evenly matched. When I put that armor on I started winning just about every single time because before that it had come down to a western style draw. Who got One the da shot da off da. first?
0: You and I did that for a long time yeah. too. And, and then I mean, we both got armor and
1: we're like, oh no. Crap, we gotta figure out how to do this differently. learn. <laughs> so, armor ups your game. Uh, it shouldn't make you lazy, though. Don't rely on your armor to get you wins. Yeah, it's only going to take you so far. But it is a tool. It is a tool that can absolutely be used. Now, in 40k, where you have better toughness or better armor saves, and also in bell with literal armor. The other main uh, a huge idea, like we already touched on this, but it's the idea of a mixed unit or mixed arms. And within Belagarth, this looks largely like half of the group using sword and board, a quarter of them using pole arms of some sort, either spears, reds, glaives, whatever. And then a couple of archers and then a quarter of them are as archers mm-hmm. yep and that composition seems to do extremely well on the Bellegarde field and there's a reason for that it, it's classically one of the best ways to do things Napoleon as we've already touched upon enjoyed his units being self-contained everything that needed to was, was all in the one company or all inside the one battalion and, and kind of the same thing here if you've got mixed arms and everybody is supporting one another it's far more effective at what you're doing rather than just doing all spears because the problem with all spears is if somebody gets close all, all spears, spears is, bad. is great. <clears throat> Like
0: uh, Gelf, Since Gelf is a such a heavy support weapon unit, there's a lot of spears and there's a lot of archers and it's scary to fight. It's really good. But if you can get too close to us or if you have enough archers that you can really start to pick us off because we don't have... When, when there's that many pole arms, you don't have a great archer defense. Right. It gets really un... Like, it can turn on you really fast. Or if
1: you go against a very effective primarily sword and board unit. Yeah. That can be nasty. If they know what they're doing. Again, if they stay at range and let you hack their shields apart and let you stab them, then you're going to be very effective. Mm -hmm. But if they're using Roman style, then that gets a lot scarier. scarier. Absolutely.
0: I mean, it's why the Greeks couldn't compete against the Romans at the end of the day. Like, they did well, but the moment they had to turn left, the Greeks were like, oh,
1: no. (laughs) Well, the Legion, like you said, the Legion was just so much more maneuverable and and so much more flexible than a phalanx. The the mixed arms is, is a very good idea. And again, it's the same idea in 40k as well. You want a good mixture. Like, primarily you want infantry because infantry are the ones who can go and grab and secure objectives, uh, threaten, get your board control that's where you're going to be getting most of your points but you have to remember that you need your long range stuff, your archers, and your mobility factor, which would be either your cav or your pole arms in what we're talking about and so having that mixed force, because pure infantry forces don't tend to do well, they get shot apart, all tank forces don't have the manpower to take the field so a mixture is is the best kind of army in yeah. all cases and then I a kind of side note, and this is specifically for bellagarth but he, he uh, Machiavelli gives very specific advice to those who use spears, halberds, glaives, polearms of any kind which is have a sidearm because that, that distance thing we're talking about once they close you become completely ineffective but he says that can be remedied by having a dagger or a short sword on your person so that when they close it can be a more fight. you spend a lot of time using polearms thumbs
0: yeah I actually I'm sorry I don't use a sidearm a lot anymore par- okay, I would be disappointed. And it and I pay for it <laughs> anytime anyone gets within five feet right I am just I have to run. Wug, who I already mentioned, who comes up a lot, because he's a pretty good spearman, uses a close-range weapon, and Mm -hmm. if you get close he just throws himself at you with his like tiny little thing and it he gets half his kills that way Mm -hmm. uh and i that's how i used to get most of my kills when i was spearing the main reason i don't use it anymore is i need to make a new one with a handle that is a little thinner so i can hold it with my spear a little better fair enough because i haven't found scabbards that work super well for Belagarth or like frogs or clips or anything
1: you know i got some frogs from gorg the blacksmith that i like a lot
0: oh those uh the pvc ones yeah yeah
1: I've seen a couple of them break... Might have But that's
0: that's great. I, I fell that's directly awesome. on them. And
1: they're fine. So if you want to borrow one, is what I'm saying. I'll give
0: it a shot because that's the biggest problem I have.
1: As sure. everyone gets close, I am just done. Free advertising for Gorg the Blacksmith. He makes those $30 f- f- sword frogs and I love them. Yes, I, he I'm does. absolutely willing to boost you right here. Sir. He does
0: make very good stuff. I'm not insulting Gorg by saying the fact that I saw a few from break. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: But whatever, whatever you need to do, polearm users, make sure that you have yourself a sidearm because it makes you so much more effective on the field and makes it so that whoever's going against you has to think twice before rushing you because it's not just a guaranteed kill uh, also if, I, if bu- I can't just run up the spear and kill somebody I gotta be a lot more tactical about it also a buckler or a backpack shield very good points as well just a little bits of armor I mean it's not armor but armor What it, I mean like it's not technically armor within Balagarth but you're yeah. still armoring yourself no no these are all good points so anything else on arming arming your force? No, that's pretty, like, varying up. Right on. Well, the next portion of the chapter that I, again, a lot of this chapter was hitting on Calf. The other real substance I got from this chapter was on the subject of training and the purpose of training. Kind of like the mindset when you're going into it. When I was reading this section, it reminded me of, uh, I was watching a documentary on some of the Congo police force that was being sent out to take on Boko Haram a few years ago. And there was one sergeant within this unit that was extremely popular all of his men loved him and just every time he wasn't on duty or in the in the bush d- doing military duty he was working out lifting weights doing push-ups doing sit-ups going for runs like that was he just was constantly working out and the documenter kind of gets confused at one point and is like you have training you have these exercises why do you why are you constantly doing this and he looks at him as though the answer is totally obvious and says train hard fight easy <laughs> yeah and and it was it was just one of the most simple things i've ever heard And i was like that is the most true thing i have ever heard if You train hard, you fight easy. This guy is constantly working when he's in his off time, so that when he's on the field of battle, it's nothing. It's Uh, just another workout. When I
0: was in the Montana Conservation Corps and I was working out in the woods doing trail work and hiking ten miles a day and all that stuff, I was really worried at first that I was going to lose some of my fighting ability because I wasn't able to fight as often. But I got back and I was doing even better, just because I was in the best shape of my life and I had
1: cardio. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. It was one of the reasons I wanted to do the Montana Conservation Corps was because we. When you and TF would come back. Pop up and just fight for like four hours straight being like, this is great! Just like, how the heck are they <laughs> getting, getting this energy? I have never reached that top point again, and I probably never will again. Like, But that's okay. But it's it's something to aspire to, and it's not say, again, all of us have busy lives. I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast are working full-time jobs or, or going to school. They don't have time to disappear into the woods for ten days at a time. Exactly. Uh, and so there's only so much that can be expected of us. But that being said, I've absolutely noticed that those who physically train their bodies do better in something like Bellagarth. those who physically train their minds do something better in some in in, in things like 40k because i mean we've been talking about belegarth in terms of endurance but let's talk about 40k for a second let's talk about being on your feet for a day two days three days depending on the tournament where you're needing to remember all these rules you're needing to remember your tactics you're responding to what your opponent is doing you're trying to do so all over the roar of the room around you you're likely doing so while stressed lack of sleep and lack of good nutrition there is absolutely an endurance that comes to that oh as well. yeah anybody who wants to train competitively for anything needs to train their body for what they're doing so even though with with something like physical war gaming it's a bit more obvious for warhammer it's just as important because if you're not able to play the full game if your body gives out before t- round six and and you start getting sloppy because you just want the game to be over your feet are hurting your knees are hurting your legs are tired whatever the case may be you've given a clear advantage to your opponent who if they're fresh and ready in it yeah they've, they've, they've got it they've got Uh, advantage. This might be kind of cheating, but I'm going to
0: add in for, like, arming yourself in that case. It's not just what you're arming yourself with, but, like, making sure you have water making sure you have a snack if you need it and it's something that's actually
1: like yeah, That's part of my, tr- when I go to even when I'm just going down the hill, I'm not even doing massive tournaments, I just go down the hill occasionally for a game. I make sure to stock my backpack with what I'm going to need. I make sure I bring a snack, I got a bottle of water in there you know, I've, I've got whatever I might need while I'm down there.
0: Yeah, if you're going to be a couple hours like, be prepped for it to be a couple
1: hours. And that's, that's, uh, that's a game that's going quick, where you're not enjoying one another's presence and, and chatting about irrelevant stuff, because like when Kaji and I get together for a game. They go on. You get about like, three rounds and then he's got to go to bed. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> the three rounds took eight hours. Jesus um, Christ. Again, we like to chat, Kaji and I. The training is, is, is so, sort of, for instance, for if Kaji and I ever want, actually want to go to a tournament, we've talked about it. We're going to start bringing a chess clock to uh, our games so that we can just make sure that we're staying under time. Oh, I like that. Yeah and it's actually it's becoming more and more common in 40k tournaments to bring a chess clock so that somebody can't slow game you because I've been to tournaments before where I I knew all my rules really well just here in town I knew my rules really well I was moving really quickly but my opponent either had a super large army or didn't know the rules that well and their rounds lasted so much longer than mine. The There was a time limit on each of the, the matches and so we'd get through like the third round the TI would call it and like in one particular case I was going against some Tyranids and if it would have gone on for one more round wildly changed the game i would have won because i was i had already decimated his forces he had gotten some early points but i had decimated what he had on the board and the next three rounds was going to be me playing cleanup he won because the game ended on turn three but he was slow playing me the entire time and i was just so vexed (laughs) i was so vexed because i was like i was doing well i was doing the right thing i was doing my strategy and so at that like at that point i resolved the next tournament i go to i'm bringing a chess clock Forty K kind of turnies that I, forty K strategies I'd never would have considered before. Slow playing somebody, yeah, is cheap. If you're a slow player, you are cheap as hell. <laughs> and I do not care for you. Clark will throw the shade. I will throw that shade, not very strongly. I'm not much of a thrower these days, but I, I will. I will toss that shade gently and expect you to catch it. Yes. <laughs> What's our next thing here? Ne- <laughs> Sorry, I don't have. A, I don't have a continuation <laughs> of that. <laughs> So uh, Machiavelli specifically says, without training, even the best armed soldiers are useless. And and that's absolutely true. You can have the best gear on the field, but if you don't know how to use it effectively, it's really not going to serve you that well. And so what is the purpose of training? I mean, that seems kind of obvious, but let's really break it down and discuss dissect it like Machiavelli does. The purposes of training are threefold. The first one, and this is the obvious one, is to harden the body, accustom it to endure hardship, to act faster, and with more dexterity. So this is where all your physical training comes in. The next one is to teach teach it the use of arms so actually how to use your sword actually how to use your spear how to hit your target with a bow and arrow and then the third one is the observance of orders in marching fighting and in camping so this is making sure because again Machiavelli in this goes through some tiresome details on how to organize a unit to turn together and to to transition from column marching to being a wider fanned formation for like a battle these things are not necessarily important for what we're doing because we don't have the numbers that Machiavelli was talking about I mean the smallest size Group that he talks about in here is about the size of most of our events. Um, yeah, a
0: few so, hundred people. Yeah,
1: so our, like our our units do not get to the size of where the organization that he talks about is going to be truly useful. But that being said, he has some very good pointers on on how to organize what we do have. Let's go back to the top. The this idea of hardening the body, accustoming it to endure hardship. How do you how do you accomplish this? Well, the obvious answer is through the physical training. He encourages calisthenics basically body weight training. So push ups, sit ups, jogging, going for high. Anything that involves your body moving through its environment and using its own weight. Yep, cardio is huge. He also encourages increased weight. So when you're going on those hikes, having a weighted backpack. Or for the longest time, one of the things that I did as a fighter, there was a brief fad in Stygia for doing this, was to wear weights while fighting. Dragon Ball Z style. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. I I know that's... I'm sure you were thinking Machiavelli style, but...
1: Yeah, I was. I I had recently read Machiavelli, but everybody told me I was Naruto. I was was doing something from Naruto, I think. (laughs) Oh, that one Um, pissed you off. Yes, it did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the whole point of this is that if you can learn to be fast with the weights on it will make you that much faster with the weights off and then of course he encourages pell work and so a pell is just a, a an object that you practice your swings on and so i i know i keep promising the 12 shots are coming i've had a couple of you write into me saying hey didn't you a few months ago say you were gonna do a 12 shot what are these video? 12 shots um yes i did say i was gonna do that yes i dropped the ball yes it is still coming so uh, i appreciate your patience on that particular matter, um, doing any sort of forms, any sort of, like, that kind of sword work increases your familiarity with the weapon and with using it as a body. They always say that the sword should be an extension of your arm. How do you do that? You should become as familiar with the sword as you are with your own arm. So, you need to use it. A lot. Yeah. for the same functions. I don't think that cooking a full meal or doing your taxes with a sword are going to be quite as effective, but it has it's a tool. It has its function. <laughs> and the more practice you have with stuff, the better you'll do.
0: We'll get people in who already have the physical, like, who are already in really good shape and expect to do really well. Either athletes or martial artists or something like And that. not understand why they are not... Like, they'll do fine, but it's only taking them so far... And not understand why they're not getting farther. And the reason of that is really training. It's yep. just time. It's familiarity with what you're doing. You don't have to stop and think about it before you respond.
1: And what does that training need to look like? Like, what is what is the... Like, if you are a trainer, if you're trying to help one of these newer people progress, what does that look like? Well, Machiavelli has some advice for that as well. He says that training should look like this. It goes from correction, so the correction of, of whatever they're doing, making sure they, they're they holding it right, they're standing right, they're throwing their shots right. Please don't lean on the tip of that sword. or. Right you
0: are leaning forward too far. I know I've told you this 40 times, but we're fixing it now, so you don't have to break a habit. It's easier to, like, not, not learn it. the first
1: place. So with this correction comes improvement, and from improvement comes courage, because Machiavelli's reasoning is that somebody who is competent at what they're doing is also going to be more confident at what they're doing. I think that is, is a fairly... It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's a very solid assertion. It's um, good alliteration for a different language, too. Like, it <laughs> translated well. It did. It did. And, and all this starts best, it, the younger you can start the better. This is not to say I'm not trying to discourage people who are coming to the to the sport late, later in life, uh, in your 20s or 30s. My war master didn't start until he was fairly late in life and he made quite a name for himself and, and achieved quite high Yeah, standards. there's definite
0: advantages to starting
1: later too. Like, it's not all one side, but it's but nice to... Physically speaking, it is easier to start young and train your body. Both Thumbs and I started when we were 15, 15. 14. Yeah. And so, literally over half our lives has been physically being trained toward this. Yeah, my muscle uh, memory is on point for some stuff. Me too. I've lost a lot of muscle mass, but I can throw a kidney wrap still. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget how to throw a kidney wrap. So this this uh, this training, though, this exercise, Machiavelli says that it happens in two different ways, and it, I think this kind of depends on what your unit slash realm uh, is, is gearing for in terms of member engagement. Because in a republic, he says that this exercise needs to happen at home. In an empire, it needs to happen in the army. Like, all practicing together. And I would say that in this, with this particular analogy that Stygia is more like a republic. We get together and practice on Sundays and we do some engagement, some classes with our noobs. We don't do a much formalized training. No. And so we're more of a republic in this way. We expect people to go and train themselves and then come and get the finer points hammered out as a group. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I've seen realms like uh, Durdamerion or Wrath. Yeah, Wrath is very very involved with their new people, have very rigorous training regimens and and function a bit more like an empire in that particular regard.
0: I will say the only warning on this kind of thing, because you do want to train your new people, and we've (laughs) been working on being better on that while still being as weirdly independent mountain men as we are, (laughs) that you want to trained them, but you also need to make sure that they have their own room to experiment and make mistakes and develop their own style. Absolutely. I have seen vets hold on too tight to new people, mm-hmm. and there starts to be a lot of conflict there as they're trying to determine who they are, while the vet is basically, without meaning to, trying to make them, them. a little version of themselves. Right. Yeah,
1: right. I think all of us were guilty of it at some point in our career before we realized that people needed this room to grow, because we're, we're all just so happy. Once you get to a point, even that, that, that first level of mastery, where you're able to even teach the basics to somebody else, it feels so good.
0: Oh, yeah. And to be fair, I'm not saying there's not people going the other way. I have a habit of giving
1: people a bit too much free reign sometimes. I could be probably accused of the same. Yeah. <laughs> I'm largely in. Uh, my, my war master uh, instructed me by letting me instruct myself. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Uh, I describe my squireship as
0: Dio pulling the
1: ripcord and seeing what happened. Hmm. <laughs> That's what happens when we do this. <laughs> Oh, there he goes. <laughs> So, uh, on this idea of training, though, what is the most effective way for this to occur? He advises that play. Play becomes training, and training becomes excellence. So, th- I think the point of this is that it really should be fun. If your drills, or your exercises, or what you're doing, isn't fun for you... Then why are you doing it? One, why are you doing it? Two, you could be doing something else. Uh, for instance, for me, if I'm just sitting at home, and I'm just lifting weights, it's that's not really fun. That's not something I very much enjoy. Now, if I'm lifting weights while watching games... Game of Thrones oh
0: I can't do that I've tried I love it I get I too distracted
1: it. well I, I, I guess I've been doing this since I was in the military so keeping a 10 count in my head is whatever
0: oh and I, and I get it too like I have to go to a specific location is kind of my thing more than anything sure, else sure. but I'll put on an audio book and enjoy whatever weird stuff is going on at the time or a podcast
1: or a podcast hey Sorry. music is huge too like when I'm doing my forms I always have music on and I turn it into a little bit more like a dance mm-hmm. uh, and, and so it's a matter it, it becomes a flowing motion that any I mean, if if you fought against me, you've seen this. You like when I tell people that my footwork comes from dance classes, they're not surprised because yeah. I'm I'm kind of a twinkle toes <laughs> on the field. It gives you also have
0: that kind of like waltz movement shape with your I, movements. I it's... do like my, my
1: my triplet form. One,
0: two, three.
1: Uh, one, two, three. One, two, kill. One, two, kill. <laughs> one, two, kill. And spin. <laughs> Just for flourish. Um, but whatever it is, so like I say, we're sitting here laughing. We're sitting here talking about the things that we enjoy to do. So, so whatever it is, whatever it is that motivates you, whatever it is that makes this fun. If you're one of those people that loves to go on a run while you're listening to a podcast hey, or, or listening to some music or whatever, <laughs> then, then that's where it is. That's where your zone is. And that's cool. That's awesome. Because play should become your training. Yeah. If you're, you're
0: not having fun, you're getting distracted by how you're not having fun as right. opposed to just getting stuff done.
1: You can't get in your own way on this. If you want to achieve excellence, yeah, this is this is a huge part of it because otherwise you burn out. I mean, I've, I've been doing the same twelve shots. There's that there's that that tease again. Those twelve shots um, for I th- God. I think. Sumatai taught me those was my first year yeah it's so been 15-ish years of me doing the same moves every day I do these every day even when I'm not fighting heavily I do my forms every day and I have not gotten bored of it yet and that is because I chose a way of doing it that I like that's impressive it's good for me and so yeah I I just encourage you to find what that is it might not be dancing in your living room while your cat looks at you like a lunatic that might not be your way yeah, but uh, it's not. It's worth a shot I think <laughs> yeah who knows <laughs> so this idea of fun also needs to be countered with the idea of discipline discipline. discipline because you just have people run willy-nilly on the field nothing really gets done so if you've noticed the best most effective units are ones that are able to work toward a common goal together and are disciplined in their action so what is this what is where does this discipline come from it doesn't just come from drill because I've never seen the BOF out there standing at salute while the flag goes up in the morning and eating in under three minutes in the chow hall like I just that military efficiency is not there and yet that's not why we're there on the field it is there Mm. and so where does that come from where what is this discipline one of the big things is having the right number of officers. Again, Machiavelli presents a very, very precise equation for coming up with the right number of officers but with our lower numbers that we typically see on the field. It's a little different. It's a little different. But it, it's it's about right. For every for every 10 or so people, you should have some sort of commanding officer. Whether that's a sergeant position or a lieutenant position w- and what that looks like within your unit structure is, is up to you. But for, for about every 10 people, you want to have somebody who's in charge. Well, and this was a common thing throughout history. We've all always- weights just
0: as a species seem to like the the 10 people number we do have 10 fingers
1: it's easy for us to calculate <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to go to the toes because uh, you were in shoes nobody wants to see the toes thumbs toes thumbs i would not want to see the oh that would be toe gross. thumbs Ooh, oh <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's what we get for recording so late at night. It it gives us that that certain level of delirium that I think makes us endearing. I it's hope it makes charm. us endearing. So yeah, the right number of officers, and, and this looks different for every unit. Uh, within the Dark Angels we don't technically have any officers. Yeah, and that's because everybody is an officer at, at whatever time they choose to be in charge. So that uh, that's a little bit different, but we're also smaller. Uh, we only have, I think, 35 people in the Dark Angels. So we're able to, we, we all know each other a little bit better and can operate off of that faction. If you've got more people who are spread out over a larger area, it's guess, much more important. Much more important. And then of course, the soldiers knowing what to do and when to do it. Now this comes from running scenarios. You can either do this at practice just through the scenarios naturally arising, or through something like the Great Hunt. Part of the reason that I wanted to explain that long, onerous section at the beginning was because those are scenarios that a person can run to get better at those specific things. Trial of Fire helps you get better at killing quickly. The Trial of Metal helps you kill while also protecting your ass. So the Great Hunt are, uh, these are all outnumbered, which are things you try to avoid, but it's good to practice fighting outnumbered. So whatever you need to do, whether it's using the Great Hunt or using ...using some scenarios that your unit or realm comes up with... ...to train people in in recognizing different situations... ...and the right way to act in that situation. Again, every unit's going to have a different SOP... ...standard operating procedure for for this particular idea. But uh, it's good that everybody's on the same page. This helps you practice moving together... ...which is very important... ...because if you don't know how to move together... You're not going to. The nice um, thing
0: about units, since we don't have time to train all the same way, is we tend to gravitate towards people who already move similar to what we do. We,
1: we get very typecast. That's yeah. for sure. And for instance, the Dark Angels all basically fight how I fight. Like we're all, we've all got our individual styles, but it's we're we're similar enough that we can come together and fight together.
0: Fighting you is fighting a bunch of sneaky assassins. Fighting us is fighting a wandering wolf pack that gets distracted really easily. Yeah. Fighting the EBF is being charged by Turkey.
1: I, I always thought about fighting the EBF. Is like the emperor's champion from like uh, Japanese uh, history. Yeah. Like the, one of the best fight sword people in the world, or in the in the kingdom, would be the emperor's champion. Of course, all decked out in the regalia and 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 using their super nice gear and their presence as much as their actual skill. Yeah. That. Yeah. So it, it, they're definitely there's the or or with the with the I O F. I don't think it'd be much of a stretch to refer to them as an Irish fraternity. Um. <laughs> and I mean that with love. I if, if you guys are listening, I absolutely love my Irish fraternity. Cousins and I enjoy coming and drinking Jameson in your camp and then going to bed in my camp. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I camp at the edge of Gulf Camp yeah I'm always a quiet like even with like the dark angels have been like oh we're gonna camp with the Uruk-hai at Chaos Wars and I'm like you're gonna camp with the Uruk-hai at Chaos Wars I'm gonna camp over with the old I'm people I'm gonna go to a hotel god wouldn't that be nice someday someday we'll afford not that not a fan
0: of it myself but I, I get why people do I'm achy these yeah, days yeah I get it as I get older it makes a lot more sense
1: so again this discipline is, is partially to do with, with people knowing what to do and when to do it but the officers are just as important there's pros and cons there's pros and cons Though to clear officer demarcation, to making sure that your officers are clearly defined on the f- field of battle. The pro, obviously, is that everybody knows who the officers are, knows where they are, and knows who to listen to. The so con is that everybody they know knows who you are. Who officers are yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, as an archer more these days, I love to look for the person who's hollering the most on the other team. If that person uh, is not wearing a helmet... You're going to shoot him in the head. I'm going to shoot him in the head. <laughs> it's also really intimidating when the person being like, Now we're going left, punk. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. What happened to the dude? <laughs> Who's going to tell us what to do? I know he's fine, but still... So yeah, the, obviously the, the downside of having an officer who is clearly marked is that they are also a target for the snipers, because as a person on the other team, I want to make sure that I cut the proverbial head off of the snake as quickly as possible. That means the other people are trying to do the same. So clearly demarking your officers can be a disadvantage as well. And really, to play, it's what kind of army are you running? What kind of battle do you need to do? Well, and especially if you talk about the era of combat we're talking about, earlier,
0: a lot of times the head officer was also the head of state. It wasn't just ending a battle, it was risking ending a war. And destabilizing a nation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so so the, the uh, again and and in this in the battle we talk about we're uh, we're going to see a pro of clear officer demarcation, also a con, a con of uh, clear <laughs> officer demarcation. Uh, along the same idea though, and this is the last point we have for this idea of, of training and the purposes of training is 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 just the idea of including a standard or a large flag basically in your unit formation. Uh, some I've seen this done. Some people have somebody who carries it, like a literal standard bearer who is carrying their flag, and some people uh, put it on their backs. I've seen the Eastern Urukai and, and some of the Horde put like a, a samurai style bat, like flag on their back to kind of mark where they are. And I put this it on my spear. Uh, yep, on the spear works. Wherever it can be seen clearly, because that flag, when up in the air, is a rallying point for the whole team. Because we all know that the best battle plan goes to absolute crap. After it meets the enemy. That means people get split up. People end up on different parts of the field from the other parts of your team. And it is re- like with all that color. Forming
0: up is essential like reforming. And it can be
1: hard. It can be hard to figure out where to do so. But a standard provides a clear marked point where everybody can gather and, and kind of proceed from there. So it's worth considering. I know, again, with the Dark Angels, with our style, I don't think it would necessarily work. That <laughs> way. Don't notice us as we hang out on the edge of the... Fi- oh, crap. I've got this giant flag, but don't don't look over here. I've
0: detected a flaw in the plan.
1: <laughs> um, whereas, like, I've seen the BOF do it, and it works to great advantage because of the way that they fight. Par had this gigantic Imperium flag that was just sexy. Yeah, I love that. I know. A little mixing of the two. The BOF? Really? I knew. So I think that's that's what I've got for, for training and the purposes thereof and, and kind of for this chapter. Did you have anything else you wanted no, that's to... No, it's pretty straightforward. It's uh, This one translates really
0: well into Belagarth because it lets us talk about different styles and the, the, the stuff that I'm good at with it,
1: like making sure people have their gear. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm really enjoying this read mm-hmm. with Machiavelli. But uh, the the points that we talked about are going to play very well as we transition into the Battle of Hastings.
0: So, I didn't actually know much about the Battle of Hastings before we started this. Like, I knew roughly when it happened, and I knew that it led to the Norman Conquest of England. Right, right. But before but I didn't know any of the details of this so this was actually a really interesting read for me
1: and, and this is one of those battles that kind of like Agincourt uh, which is one of the, the earlier ones that we had spoken of these are these are common names in the western lexicon they've been talked about so much that we have a, a kind of cultural familiarity with them I found that not a whole people know details of what occurred when we are talking a th- thousand years ago? This is about
0: 500 years before Machiavelli's time. Yeah. Yeah, this was 1066. We're Um. we're just starting to come out of I know Dark Ages isn't entirely appropriate. We don't have as much in that era between the fall of the Roman Empire and this early medieval period.
1: Right, and and there was a lot of chaos, a lot of what just appears to be family drama because there's a whole lot it of was absolutely
0: family drama.
1: Like everybody's related. Like all these these royal families of Europe, for the most part, this is the point where they start to become extremely interconnected. I mean, like right now, we know that like the royal families of Europe, they're they're like a a tea drop away from relation to the other royals in Europe because it's just so the Habsburgs and the it, it's just it was just so prevalent. But at this time, there was it was starting. There was there was already some. Of That starting and so I don't know. There's there's a lot of this stuff that that very much resembles a soap opera in a lot of ways. ways. This person is
0: married to that person's sister, and they have a feud going, which led to this, which led to that, which led to a person over there who's the cousin dying for reasons that no one understands. Yep. I could literally be talking about a soap opera or early mm, medieval history.
1: Yeah. E- e- yeah, especially English history. So. <laughs> <laughs> so this is fun. This is fun stuff to study. It's fun stuff to talk about. And Hastings was important because this was the Norman invasion of England. Uh, as we were researching this, of course, we're going through and we're seeing all these Saxon names, and I was just kind of commenting to myself, I am so glad that we, we got rid of a lot of that Saxon influence in our in our naming. There's there's still some of it, but none of these names are just purely unpronounceable. If any of my family ends up listening to this, I
0: apologize for how terribly I'm going to pronounce Norwegian names, considering how deeply
1: Norwegian my family is. Yeah, I mean, but, but if we try to sit here and I was trying to pronounce something in Russian, I think I would bugger it up just as much. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we, we apologize for English being our first language. We didn't choose it, but this is the way it is. <laughs> the only language, I wish. I've got seven under my belt. You're going to Greece, aren't you? You should probably start learning. Yeah, I'm going to work on that. Yeah. So framing this a little bit for you, Edward the Confessor had been king. He slipped into a coma and in January of 1066 passed from this world. There is a lot of debate as to what happened, whether or not he woke up and spoke to anybody, uh, made any of his last wishes known. There's not a whole lot of records, but uh, there's a whole lot of claims. Yep. Which is where this... this every battle. royal has a different claim for what happened here. Yep. This started a war of succession because there were several people who felt like they either had a strong claim to the throne, felt like they deserved it in some way, or just kind of wanted to participate. Yeah. I guess. They just wanted um, <laughs> it. No real excuse. I just want it. So let's let's frame this a little bit. We're going we're gonna to talk about the Battle of Hastings, but First, I want to talk about the, the, this year that precipitated Hastings. There's four main players that are kind of worth noting in this time frame. The two first, of them
0: are named Harold.
1: Two Just of them are named you. Harold. So, so we're going to try to differentiate them. Harold Goodwinson is the English Harold. He was the the Earl of East Anglia. He was also known as Harold of Wessex. Uh, and then the other Harold is Harold the Third or Harold Hardrude. Hardrude,
0: Hardrude, a Swedish <laughs> Chef. Swedish Chef.
1: Harold the Third. We're going to go with Harold the Third of, of Norway. So there's two Harolds here, and one of them is Harold Goodwin or Goodwinson, and the other one is Harold the Third. That's how we're going to differentiate them. We're going to start with Harold Goodwinson. He was the brother-in-law of the king, and the closest by means of proximity and by means of relationship to Edward the Confessor. He was like in the castle. Yeah, like a member of that court when it all went down. So they they were very close. It is reported by Harold that Edward, on his death, as as he was dying, woke up long enough to say, "Take care of the kingdom." or the, the protect exact, protect, the protect the kingdom and his widow and Harold took that to mean become king so the, there there was a, a moot of sorts that was convened and they basically decided very quickly right after he died uh that that Harold would become the king. The widow backed him up, but like, to be fair, I mean it might have been entirely true
0: or it might have been just the safest place for the widow to go when there's this guy with swords
1: right there being like, I would like to be the king, so uh, he said that I should protect it, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course there's also the element that it might have been a usurping move. It happened very quickly. The, the counter to this is that it happened around the time of a festival that the people would have been gathering anyways so the fact that all these noble were there might not have been some plan of Harold to take the throne. He could have just been insanely lucky. Yeah, and was in the right place at the right time and was the right dude. But there was some uh, disagreement. Disagreement Disagreement with this. Uh, For instance, we have William of Normandy, who who is the Duke of Normandy, and he is the first cousin, once removed, of Edward the Confessor. And he also feels like he has a claim to the throne. More along the lines, he felt like Harold stole it. He, he basically rallied support to go and take it. He claimed that
0: him and Edward had made a deal that if he died first, Edward would get both countries. Normandy, yeah. And if Edward died first, he got England. Which is insane to me, if you think about it. That's like telling the Prime Minister of Canada, if I die while I'm in office, you can just have the United States. <laughs> think of how weird not, that sounds in a Not trying
1: to diminish Canada in any way. Or the other way, or the other way around. But yeah, just, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre claim to have. Not to say that it didn't happen. We weren't there. We it don't know. pretty standard of the time, actually. Like, it happened more than you would have thought. Yeah. So yeah, the, so William laid claim to the throne. Next, and this is where we start getting into the really good, like, soap opera portion of the Be- show.
0: Before we can even deal with William, like, yeah. before Harold can deal with William, he has to deal with this. He has to deal
1: with two other folks, and the first one is tostic His brother. brother. It was, it was Harold's brother. And uh, they, brother. they were kind of on the outs. There had been this, this rebellion it didn't really go so well. As a result, for the fallout, Tostig ends up exiled. Now, it, it looks like Harold did this for everybody's best. It was to protect Tostig and to ensure peace in these northern kingdoms, because Tostig was from Northumbria. Um, Tostig, man. Yeah, he didn't appreciate it. He he didn't he didn't so much like this judgment of this newly crowned monarch, and so he decided to outsource. <laughs> I think is the term. And this is where we run into our fourth and last player in today's scene. I'm other, Herald. other Herald. Harold, other Harold, Harold the Third, Harold unpronounceable Norwegian name, and he was invited to this party. He had just had a, a failed invasion of Denmark, uh, was feeling kind of feisty, and he gets this invitation from Tostig to come and invade England. And he's like, I'm not up to anything. I mean, at the time, you know, England wasn't a huge superpower. It, it, like, it only recently become in any way united. Up until this point, you had the, the, these kingdoms of Wessex, the kingdom of, of Northumbria, tiny um, fiefdoms all across the island, and they were independent for the longest time. Well, and it was getting easier to access each other. Like, the, the ocean
0: trade was getting way better yep. around this time.
1: Yep, yep, yep. And so, the the unification was occurring up until this point. Let's be honest, the Vikings had been kind of walking all over the United Kingdom. And so, they came kind of expecting some of the same. They Unfortunately, were, a few too many Vikings had started to settle by that point. In that England. too, that too. And, and, and again, they were getting wise to the tricks. So, what we had here was just a, a hot seat for Harold Goodwinson <laughs> to, to be in because he's, he's freshly crowned, crowned king and not only one but two armies are invading and not from the same direction one's coming from the north and one's coming from the south because William very blatantly declared he was going to come over and do something about this. The way troops were set up at the time too
0: was it was just based off how much land you had like for every like ma- five miles of land you had to supply a person to the army or something. Right, right. But that meant that you were literally getting troops from every part of this island which is not a small island. Particularly if you don't have vehicles. Right. Or motorized vehicles. Right, right, right. So getting the whole army
1: to one place is insanely difficult. And and so he kind of had to gather it as he went in both directions. He had a more complete army as he went north, and uh, the first encounters were against the Norwegians and his brother Tolstic. One thought on
0: talking about gathering armies and stuff like this. Numbers for ancient battles when you're looking up how many were at the battle are wildly different across what era. Right. Contemporary army or contemporary sources tend to make them way bigger than we think they actually were because it sounded more impressive. You see how I beat this army of a hundred thousand people and people like, "You don't have a hundred thousand people in your country." <laughs> uh, for example, we think that Harold, British Harold, Harold, not other Harold, Goodwinson, Goodwinson, had about seven thousand
1: troops mm-hmm. at a time ish. Other people were up to like ten thousand. Uh, and so again, we're dealing with smaller numbers at this point, but definitely not negligible numbers. Yeah. And the first First battle actually went to the invaders. Um, Harold III and Tostig won a small battle at Fulford on the 20th of September. And they were very much emboldened by this and continued to press onwards and then were defeated at Stamford Bridge five days later. They were also executed at Stamford Bridge. So it they, did not last long. It did not last long. So they invaded, they they had one little success, and then they got smashed. But before Goodwinson had a chance to celebrate his success, he learned that William had established a beachhead down in Pavansea. So this is on the 28th of September. So if you remember that Battle of Fulford it was the 20th of September, 5 days later, you've got Stamford Bridge and then on the 28th uh, there's a there's a a whole new front that has opened up in the south.
0: And in this era, a single battle could end you, so having a slightly beat-up army is not small for dealing with stuff.
1: And, and so as he proceeded south, he recruited people as he was going. It'd be like, uh, did you already contribute your levy? Uh, even if you did, we need more troops. Yep. And so just kind of picking up uh, scattered... He uh, didn't have
0: time to cover the whole country. Like, I've heard him right. get get talked at it for that. Like, oh, well, that's the mistake he made. But if William got into the lands...
1: It would have been over. It would have been outward Because There's... William had a, a, a well-prepared force. Uh William had a decent-ish claim to the throne and the longer he spent in company, or in country, uh was more chance for him to recruit other nobles to his side. And so um, he gets all the men from that fiefdom. Exactly. So it, it was a, like, even though it may have seemed wiser to have g- gathered a larger force before going to meet William, um, it really was on Harold's mind to be fast in this. The celerity did matter because he needed to secure the country as quickly as possible to make sure sure that it stayed unified, because it hadn't been unified that long.
0: Well, and he also didn't have much cavalry. No. no. So traveling was always slow, comparatively.
1: And and we're talking about dispositions, like you said. Uh, Harold would have had roughly 7,000, mostly infantry, very few archers, negligible amount of cavalry. And then William arrived with roughly 10,000, and they were half infantry, and then a quarter calf and a quarter archer. Do you remember earlier when we were talking about mixed units being more flexible and more useful on the field? William definitely came with a more prepared mixed unit. He also had the time to prepare it. Yeah, <laughs> and wasn't scrambling to defend his country.
0: I, I feel bad here, because all the people I was reading about were like, and Harold made these terrible decisions. They're like, Harold did not have a lot going
1: for him with yeah, this. Yeah, it, it didn't have a whole lot of good decisions to make. In Warhammer 40k, we often talk about trying to leave your opponent with no good options. Uh, William did a pretty good job. I don't know if he, if he timed it specifically for this, because it did take him a while to get his ships and, and army together to get across, but the timing seems to be perfect in order to just kind of throw Harold off a little bit. So, they meet about seven months miles outside of what is now the English town of Hastings. And Harold takes a strong position at the top of a hill. This battle lasted all day. We're talking nine in the morning till dusk of hard fighting. And what time of year did you say this was? October. October? Um, This was, yeah, the 14th of October. You're still talking 12 plus hours, though. Yeah, which is, yeah, so it's a long time, a lot of it in the dark or or, or in dim light, and it it was difficult fighting because William kept trying to shake Harold off of this this charge after charge after charge, and Harold just did not seem to be moved he had he was using these infantry really tightly together and even the Cav. it was good strategy it was very good strategy and it was using the infantry for exactly what they're for which is a strong defensive position if you've got uh, shieldmen who are good at sticking together and not getting picked off they can defend against a lot i mean yeah. that, that that's like the core of a good army right there well and also the uphill because like the archers were trying to a, a big part of William's
0: strategy was to use his archers in heavy duty right but archers shooting uphill gets to shield yeah and in there weren't many arrows coming back at them so they had a really diminishing case of returns on
1: that front exactly so it was it was a hard fight for william and it was it was a hard fought battle and as it was going on it looked as though harold was going to win just from sheer perseverance sheer endurance on this hilltop and then he made a mistake why he made this mistake is up for debate because what occurred was there was a cavalry charge this cavalry charge faltered and retreated the shield wall then broke formation to pursue at which point the cavalry turned around and picked them off because they were no longer in that close formation that they could protect one another. This is what cavalry wants. This is what cavalry want. So, whether or not this was intentional is what's up for debate. Could have been an intentional feint, trying to draw them off the mountaintop with something that looked like an easy kill. Um,
0: another source said that uh, William was d- rumored dead. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's like, well, he's dead. We're not really doing this for a reason. More time to get out. And William had to go, like,
1: riding through his army, being like, hello. <laughs> Please, no. See me? Do you see me? I'm here. Turn it around, guys. <laughs> so so again, it was a long time ago. It's hard to know exactly why it happened. But once it happened, it was hard to undo. The, the shield wall could not be quite reformed to the effectiveness that it was. And then Harold Goodwinson ended up taking an arrow to the eye. As I was saying before, aim for the officers. Uh, and without its head, without its leader, without its king, the army faltered and retreated. And then after several more skirmishes, William was crowned king of England.
0: Well, and they ended up, it, it I mean, it, it, multiple times they fell for this like retreating chart or like a fake retreat and then turn around and attack. Right, right. Uh, apparently Harold was just desperate to end this. Sure. But because uh, this is the first time, might have been an actual like break. But after that he goes, oh, Harold will step out really easily. Hmm. He'll, walk, he'll walk four steps too far out and pay for it. I can
1: provoke him. Uh, and so in this, but I thought in this instance you saw a really good example of how European cavalry was useful and then wasn't useful. Because like we said, this analysis fails to take into account the effect, Most things, the effectiveness of like Sioux, Apache, Mongolian cavalry, which are all incredibly effective. But those cultures weren't the ones at hand here. You had English cavalry who were the ones uh, participating in this battle. And so their training, they were very good at picking off small groups, uh, wolfpacking basically, to maximize their speed to, to, to take on their opponents. A heavily fortified group that, that was all working together, not so much. They, they they just lacked the gear and the training to break that wall. But wolfpacking, that was exactly what they trained to do. That was exactly <laughs> what, what their purpose was. It's and Basically so, what cavalry is. Basically what cavalry is, at least within this function. But yeah, so uh, again, I thought this was a really good example of where cavalry could be effective and where it wasn't, and how it ended up turning this battle to, to one side's favor, just through that mobility and the ability to draw an opponent out and then take advantage of that immediately and not have to reform and, and come back together for it. And, and again, the implications of this battle cannot be overstated, because Edward or Harold Goodwinson was the last... Anglo-Saxon king of England. After that, you had Norman kings, uh, and, and the Norman influence just grew, and because of the fact that Edward the Confessor had spent so much time in Normandy in his youth, and of course William had come from Normandy himself, the French influence, and the English, like the, this, this this kind of cross-contamination of cultures between France and England, this was one of the big points where that started becoming more common. The French that you use in your everyday uh, language, you know, when you say hors d'oeuvre, when you... When it's you say, because of here. It's be, This is the reason. This is... the. When it started. So, so the the long term implications on Western culture from this particular battle can, it, it was very important.
0: It's huge. Like I'm just sitting here thinking about this, being like, oh man! Like to an extent, the fact that I'm sitting here thinking about this right now can be traced back to this specific battle because like, the a, way our
1: culture set up. If the if the Norwegians would have won it, it, it would like the country England would have looked totally different for the next several hundred years. If the English oh, man, would, that would have be prevailed, fascinating. like the Anglo Saxons would have prevailed. Like we could do a whole what if episode because this is one of those those bizarre points in history that it seems like there was a lot of hinging. Now that might be some Anglocentrism <laughs> on my part. But yeah, uh, again, this is uh, this is one of those uh, I, I'm glad we studied this one. Because mm-hmm. like you said, like we spoke in the beginning, it's one of those battles that a lot of people have heard of. Uh, it's one of those battles that a lot of people understand that it was important but they don't necessarily understand why or what exactly took place. And there's so many people in it that
0: like, the moment you try to explain it, if you don't sit down and read it you're just yeah. like, oh god, the Heralds. The War of the Heralds.
1: Netflix, if you're listening, I would watch this Show. Let me. I'm just putting that out there. Oh, yeah. This this would be great. This is good drama right here. (laughs) (laughs) Ugh. Do well, you have anything else on the on the Battle
0: of Hastings? No, I, I think we're pretty much set there. Uh, I need to every time I do this, I'm like, I need to read more about this era, which is awesome.
1: Again, okay, the, the the fact that we are that we're learning uh, more and more about this uh, through it and getting more ideas for additional podcasts, I just I like it. So yeah, I think I think we have some uh, some plugs that we want to yeah, include right now. Yeah, that's
0: now that we've gone through the basic episode, you should uh, you should like us on whatever you follow. You should subscribe to us. You should give us a review. Um, I'm told five star reviews make us bump up higher, but honestly just give us reviews tell us how we're yeah, doing
1: just any reviews any feedback we we absolutely love to engage with y'all learn what's working what's not working what you would like to hear from the show so absolutely please get in touch with us
0: follow us on social media we're on instagram at art of war gaming podcast
1: uh, you can email us at art of war gaming podcast at gmail.com
0: and we're on facebook at the art of, the art of war gaming is it the art or art just, it's the art of war
1: gaming okay. so for facebook is the only place that we use the art of war gaming sorry guys we know
0: it's confusing whatever <laughs> We are here on the Earworm Network, which mm-hmm. is, we are one of three shows. You can also, if you enjoyed this, be to listen to me at General Nerdery or the other show, Fried Squirms, which reviews horror movies. You can find all of this at EarVerm.com,
1: including The Art of Wargaming. Uh, like, share, comment, critique. We would love to... Would love to hear from you. Indeed. But until next week when we're covering The Art of War Part 3, this is Yaga Malark. And Thumbs. Signing off.